Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is all about futurism and speculative fiction. I'm Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock here with my colleague, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. Wonderful to be back here with you again, Rabbi Healy Pollock. For this, our fourth episode, we're going to answer what we're now calling the question of the week. What favorite realm of yours would you like to see 1,000 years beyond its latest date? Then we'll talk about what we've been watching or reading since our last episode. And then we'll turn to our main topic, speculative fiction and futurism, inspired by the State of Israel's recent 75th anniversary celebration, and the speculative and or futuristic work of the father of modern Zionism, Theodor Herzl, who wrote Alt Newland, what a Jewish state could look like from the point of view of the early 20th century. And then for a final segment from the Geniza, we'll dust off some works by the Latter-day Saints author, Orson Scott Card. So first off, this week's question, Lizzie, what favorite realm of yours would you like to see 1,000 years beyond its current timeline? Well, I'm going to have to be boring here and go with the primary fantasy series that I've both read all of the books of and watched the TV series, which is Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire. Since it's clearly inspired by Europe and Britain in particular, it leads me to think about, you know, how much has, has Europe changed in a thousand years? And so I'm curious, what would it look like to zoop forward a thousand years from the end point of the Game of Thrones as it concluded with the TV series? What does modernity look like when you have dragons and other magical elements in the works? Is the monarchy still a thing at the end of the TV series? Tyrion suggests a move to a different kind of structure for the monarchy where the, the monarchs are selected on the basis of competence, I suppose, rather than hereditary. The Northern Kingdom splits off and is its own thing. The, the North beyond the wall is still immersed in this long-term winter, which is starting to melt off. Can wonder what happens in a thousand years. Is the Ice Age over? Um, what's gone on politically? How did Tyrion's semi-democracy kind of work out? What new alliances or divisions have occurred in the years since? And where do we find, if at all, these dynasties from the, the Seven Kingdoms and, and what's happened with them? It's interesting to think about. What about you, Andrew? I would like to see the world of Avatar The Last Airbender 1,000 years in the future. For those who have not yet watched Avatar The Last Airbender or Legend of Korra, you all should. It's a world that is basically like a pan-Asian alternate Earth where there's four major nations, each one tied to an element, Earth, fire, air, water, and certain people unclear who have the ability to bend or manipulate their nation's element 
and one person every generation can actually bend all four, and that person, when they die, is born into another nation, and they figure out that they are the avatar who can bend all four, and their job is to restore world harmony. The first series is set in the pre-industrial age, and the second series with Korra is set in like a 1920s, 1930s time period. And I've often wondered, you know, where it would go in a thousand years. They already evolve what benders can do, like earthbenders learn how to metal bend. And then would they then be able to, in the future, be able to actually then, you know, hack computers extremely well? Or earthbenders can also essentially, you know, create lava by making the atoms of the rock vibrate quickly. Could they then also at some point create, like, a nuclear power version of earth bending like if the powers keep evolving and being refined you know where could it go and you know if they were to leave their planet you know would they find that this is actually true of other worlds is it unique to earth or whatever they call their planet i think it would be a blast to see where taking the bending world if that's just how their cosmos operates how that operates in other planets would be very interesting so i would love to see that so if you, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Have you watched Avatar in general? I oh. haven't. It, it's come up a couple of times for me over the years as something that would be particularly interesting to me to watch. So it's a great I, I show to, to watch. Check with, it out. Great to watch with younger kids. It's very family friendly. It does not get vulgar. It doesn't get gross. It's very funny. There's arcs in characters that are good for kids, adults, parents, families. It's very watchable for a family setting. We just, we all love it so much in my household. And we're looking forward to what they're gonna do with upcoming movies and new series coming out. It's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. sounds like something fun to dive into since I have school-age kids. Yes, if they're into it, they'll drag you along. They, they usually do. <laughs> and if you listening have an idea for a realm that you wanna see a thousand years in the future, drop us an email with what realm you wanna see a thousand years from wherever it leaves off at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. Okay, on to what we watched and read lately. So actually I was realizing as you were speaking about Avatar that it's a perfect segue into what I've been watching and reading lately, which is Monstrous, a fantasy comic book series written by Marjorie Liu and illustrated by Sana Takeda which is similarly set in a pan-Asian inspired 20th, early 20th century Asia. In this particular world, it's largely a matriarchal society. There are distinct steampunk vibes as well. And it centers largely on a character, Micah Halfwolf, who's a teenage girl. And she becomes connected with this powerful monsters, demon, spirit. We're not exactly quite sure what this entity is called a Zin. So the, the kind of overall backdrop to the story is that there are different species of beings. There are humans who are part of the Federation. Why is there always a Federation? 
and the Arcanics, who are creatures that are they're sort of a human-animal hybrid. Sometimes they look a little bit more human. Sometimes they look a little bit more like animals. But whatever their particular qualities are, they are captured and parts of their bodies are harvested and consumed by the Cumea, who are these kind of sorceress witches who are part of the the Federation, and they gain their powers through this consumption. So Micah is a an arcanic. She mostly looks human. She is set off on her story to kind of learn about and avenge the death of her mother. But of course, she discovers that she has this connection with this creature that sometimes kind of seems to take over body and mind. She doesn't really remember what happens when that occurs, which I thought kind of had some interesting connections possibly with with some Jewish themes, right? Obviously, there's the connection of her exploration of her identity. Who is she? She doesn't really know anything about her past. Her father connects, in my mind, to questions about Jewish identity, particularly questions of people who might have some Jewish heritage and who are exploring that, trying to integrate that into their own identity and and think about what that means. There's also some parallels with Jewish history, the human attitudes in Monstrous Towards the Arcanics as being kind of non-people. And then with this relationship between Micah and this demon or Zin, what is it, what are, it might be interesting to talk about or think about. And one of the other interesting possible connections to explore is the relationship between Micah and this demon that possesses her and Jewish stories and ideas around demons, around other kinds of non-physical beings, around the idea of spirit possession in the form of a dipic, this idea that a spirit or a ghost could cling to a human being and maybe kind of take over in some way. So there might be some parallels there as well. That's interesting. I had not thought about Jewish avatar connections, but you mentioned the spirit piece. There is in the avatar's world also a spirit world that exist in a different dimension than the physical world. The avatar themselves is this gateway person. They can send their spirit into it and come back. Their physical form is dormant while they're there. But the reason the avatar can do that is, and this is like how the Dalai Lama also functions. The Dalai Lama dies, their soul is born into a newborn child. And so when the avatar dies, the avatar's spirit goes into a newborn child in the next nation in a repeating cycle. That reminds me of in very old Jewish mythic storytelling is in the book of Enoch, which is a Jewish fan fiction book from the second temple (laughs) period, like way back. So Enoch does not die. He goes on a tour of the heavens. He's shown all the mysteries of the heavens, except for one, which is who is the son of man? Who is this? mysterious figure that appears in the book of Daniel and the vision of God and God's like, like helper. And it kind of becomes like, like a, a persona 
you know, who is it? And so Enoch is told, oh, it's you. You're this incarnation of a very old soul that every few centuries is born into a human being to save the world. And then when you're done, you come back up here and you will go down eventually later. It kind of reminds me of the Avatar cycle. Well, the Avatar cycle is continual. There's no break. This old soul cycle does seem to have centuries between emergences of that. And you're wondering, hey, is that Christianity? Christianity draws upon this old Jewish idea, and they kind of ran with it, which is why we kind of dropped it. Hmm. But I will say, I do think that understanding the Book of Enoch helps me understand, especially hmm. when they thought that the Rebbe didn't die. He simply was this old soul reincarnated into Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who when he died, the soul just went back up, if you will. Like, oh, if you kind of like look at it from that point of view, it kind of like fits with this very old Jewish idea. But Avatar has that similar cyclical Avatar is kind of messianic in that they are the savior of humanity. Mm -hmm. But they're constantly working at it. They're in constant need of being fixed. Humanity is messy as it is in our world. Mm. Yeah, that, oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I have so many thoughts. I thought you were going to go with talking about Gilgul, the Jewish mystical idea of reincarnation. And now since you were talking about the Rebbe and like, if this, if the idea is that the soul doesn't die, I mean, is that unique to the Lubavitcher Rebbe or is that an idea that applies to everyone and all souls kind of don't die in that way? Or like what's distinctive about their thought process about him in particular? Right. I don't know. It certainly is like, I mean, and I'm kind of like reading their approach to his death slash not death from the outside. And when I, when I, when I read stories about the Baal Shem Tov, in particular, an anthology by Yitzchak Buxbaum, a Magid who passed away a few years ago, great storyteller. When you put all of these stories together of the Baal Shem Tov, I feel like I understood Hasidic Judaism better, in particular Lubavitch Hasidism. Mm -hmm. When I read Boyarin's book called The Jewish Christ about this Daniel, Enoch, and then like early, early, like proto-Christianity kind of like grabbing onto those themes. Like, oh, that is kind of what Lubavitch Hasidism seems to be also having as an idea. This very old Jewish idea that we kind of set aside because Christianity co-opted it, but it really began as a Jewish thing. And are they tapping into this old idea? I haven't mm -hmm. asked anybody who's Lubavitch, who I know well enough to ask. One day I hope to. That'd be nice. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But when the Avatar, only the Avatar reincarnates, nobody else does so it's, it's a singular thing yeah it actually is a particular spirit that actually mm -hmm. lives in the avatar like it's like an entity that's almost like a symbiote with the human uh -huh. so it's not even a soul well it is a soul it's a it's, well soul it's a spirit but this spirit yeah. like chooses one human to basically merge with every generation and then they are this super powered person who can bend earth air earth fire air and water through their will like in shocking ways sometimes wow yeah that's that's interesting and then you know since it's like a separate entity that is not a human soul it's a separate spirit that kind of makes me think more of a dybbuk or spirit 
possession kind of thing. It is or, a possession. Or the thing that I was talking about in Monstrous with this, this spirit who is connected and at times takes over or is co-located with Micah Halfwolf. But the other thing that I was that I was thinking about as you were talking was that this spirit entity, whatever that leaves the body and goes and is reincarnated into a different one every in every generation, and that humanity is constantly in need of help and work. So I watched the end of The Mandalorian season three. And it was, as I mentioned last month, it's very nice seeing everyone get how deeply Jewish the season is. Ryan Airy from Screen Crush did a whole episode. I wrote him a letter saying, please let me be on your episode. He did not write back. He had another guy doing it who did just fine. Alan on Generation Tech. He gets it. Do you know Esther Kristianowicz? Not personally. She got a master's from JTS. She was there, but we were there for a year or so. She has a podcast called The Bagel Report about Jews in the media. She has an episode about that as well. There was a panel called The Mendel Orthodox. It was an Orthodox <laughs> Jewish panel about all these themes. But how deeply Jewish Mandalorian season three actually was, especially when you get to the end. And John Favreau, the show's creator, he is Jewish, had a bar mitzvah. <laughs> His dad was Catholic, mom was Jewish, he has daddy issues, don't we all to some level? And um, brings a lot of like Jewish themes into the whole season. One episode that kind of got people thinking about it was called The Spies. Everyone assumed, oh, there's going to be a traitor in their midst who's going to betray them to somebody else who are the spies. Everyone watched the episode and there was no spy. There was no traitor. And then someone said, people, it's about the book of numbers chapter 13 it's about the 12 spies and they go oh they send 12 mandalorians back to the to mm -hmm. scout out their home world like oh the spies right it's the spies they're all on board all 12 have a very good time so it's not like it's that you know thematically tied to the material in numbers but it's about going to scout out your homeland to see if you're ready to, to you know rebuild there so that's what it was referring to but jews got it others didn't and then jews online said hey everyone read numbers 13 you'll get it then everyone began seeing how jewish the whole season was that was a tipping point for a lot of people um they even see the produce of the land and how good it is like bringing back the grapes when the scouts return to Moses and Aaron, there's a great forge that is out that they relight at the end of the season, you know, relighting the central hearth of the people that feels very second temple, Hanukkah, Nehemiah, relighting the altar in Maccabees two, you know, that, that felt very Jewish. And in the final scene of season three, you should have watched it by now. Din Djarin and now Din Grogu, that's his full name now, basically sitting at their nice little homestead on Navarro. And I thought of the song, Bashana Haba'a. You know, in one year from today, we'll be sitting, having a nice time with nothing to do, just a peaceful period of time. That song is kind of like an optimistic, you know, secular vision of like a, of a time of peace as well. So it was a very <laughs> Jewish season, that's for sure. And then I, I finally watched Hunters season two. I kind of 
Amazon Prime original show, the show creators interviewed Holocaust survivors, some of their memoirs, and kind of like their frustrations with Nazis being brought to justice. And they wrote a revenge fantasy set in the late 70s, where a group of Jews and allies to Jews feel that Wiesenthal, who's a character played by Judd Hirsch, great Jewish actor from Barney Miller, they're frustrated that Wiesenthal is not moving fast enough and bringing Nazis to justice. So they're all going to die before this time. So they basically get together to hunt down and research and kill Nazis as vigilantes. So season one focuses on Jonah, whose grandmother Ruth is part of the hunters. She dies, but a Nazi she's hunting kills her, and they bring Jonah into the fold in the first season. The best moment for me in season one, when Jonah meets the rest of the team, they kind of cut away to like a 13-year-old girl's bar mitzvah party, and it's the it's at the bat mitzvah candle lighting ceremony, and she recites a cheese ball poem to introduce every single member of the hunter's team. You know, come on and light candle number one. It was very bar mitzvah 80s candle lighting cheese ball. And it is so old school roadhouse cinema. It's really, really funny. I'll put a clip to that in the show mm-hmm. notes. It's really, really funny, worth watching. And the second season, they track down Hitler, who's alive, who take his death, and they put him on trial. And of course, you know, what would it be like to have Hitler on trial? You know, what would his trial oh be gosh. like? What would the issues be? And what if he had a Jewish lawyer? And indeed, Hitler's lawyer was Jewish. It was very interesting. And the show is done. If they had done a third season, I think they could have done season three, Hunting Down Joseph Mengele. That would have been a nice third Mm. season and ended there if they wanted to. It, It got cut short. Did not have the viewers. It's a niche product. I don't know. Who doesn't love hunting down Nazis, though? Interesting show. I recommend it. It's like nothing else I've seen. Wow. Yeah. We'll have to check that out. Yeah, it is not for the squeamish. All right. Well, let's turn now to our main topic, speculative fiction and futurism. And our key question for today is, is Herzl's Alt-Neuland an example of a utopian novel? Is it a work of proto-futurism or speculative fiction? And why does any of this matter? Andrew, any thoughts? Most Jews today have heard of Herzl, and they know that he was the father of modern political Zionism. Not the first, but like the major one, late 19th century. And they know that they might know that he was involved in the World Zionist Congress, which got world leaders together to push for establishing a Jewish homeland somewhere. He was open to Argentina or Palestine. He was offered Uganda at some point, which he said no to. And because of his vision, having seen that indeed post-nation state Europe was not going to be a place where Jews could live in peace. They were always going to experience some level of hate and hostility, even violence or worse. He sees the need for the Jews to get out of Europe. And he begins to write about what it could look like. And he wrote a novel called Alt Neuland, where he envisions what a Jewish 
people living in its own sovereign land could even look like. He writes the pamphlet first, which was Judenstadt, and then he writes a novel six years later. And I had never heard of the novel until a few years ago. It's not important to me personally, but clearly it played an important role in Zionism. And so we thought because it was this futuristic looking ahead down the road several decades, which is a genre of science fiction and fantasy, you know, how does it fit into sci-fi and fantasy genres? How does it fit into its time period? So that's who he is and why the book might matter. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that we were thinking about as we were exploring this topic was possible connections between this work and futurism, which was an early 20th century art movement that began in Italy, focused a lot on, as the name suggests, the future. The future. Um, but on what, the future, but also, right, a sort of a rejection or like a turning away from thinking about the past and how things have been done in the past, focusing on speed, youth, technology in particular, automation, a lot of focus on machines and mechanization, mechanization rapid transit. It did every medium of art, including painting, sculpture, graphic design, industrial design, theater, film, fashion, literature, music, architecture, and even cooking, as Andrew discovered. Love that futuristic food. I, what did, do you have any idea what that involved? Tang. No, I Just don't. Tang. I'm dying to know. Okay. <laughs> Freeze-dried ice cream from Science Museum. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Dippin' Dots. Dippin' Dots. Uh, <laughs> Dippin' Dots. Just heard of the future. <laughs> so, right, this was an artistic or an aesthetic movement, but they were also passionate nationalists. And as we kind of mentioned, right, we're, we're interested in moving away from just imitating the past forms. They were interested in originality. They rebelled against harmony and good taste, swept away all the themes and subjects of all previous art and celebrated science. And Andrew, you, you found out that they had a favorite genre. Yeah, they love a good manifesto. Yeah. Yeah. And Herzl wrote Judenstadt, which is a manifesto, which kind of was where I was wondering if he fit into this art movement of futurism, even though he's a little before it. Right. Is he sort of like the zeitgeist of where it's heading? Is he ahead of the curve, even? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that we were, have been talking about also was connections with political thought, right? Like this is supposedly a literary and artistic movement, aesthetic movement, but the people who are writing these manifestos seem to have kind of a political vision or a vision that ties in with politics for sure. And that there's quite a bit of overlap between some of these folks and the emerging fascist movement in Italy, which comes a little bit later, but it's definitely, you know, nationalist in character. And so kind of, you know, and we, we noted that there are connections 
to Jabotinsky's work and a lot of the kind of like imagery from this Italian futurist movement is echoed in a lot of the art associated with revisionist Zionism or sort of Jabotinsky and others of his ilk's kind of like new Jew ethos of, you know, this modern, forward-looking, mechanized, militaristic, nationalistic kind of of way of being. And that negativity towards the past. Right. You know, leave it, it's the, you know, yeah, the new Jew and kind of, you know, the negation of the diaspora Jew mentality, the old, you know, the yeshiva boy who's sickly and pale and we're going to replace that with this you know new vision of a strong jewish very hyper masculine kind of prototype right which you mentioned futurism we we learned is horribly misogynistic like mm-hmm. so like in favor of violence towards women it was extraordinarily disturbing that some of these other ostensibly neutral to positive things had that as part of it. And they're also violent in general, which mm-hmm. Jabotinsky certainly was more inclined towards, and Herzl certainly is not. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Herzl is not part of futurism, even though they share like the nationalist piece, the thinking about the future, some using of technology, but not in the futurism kind of sense. Yeah. Both future forward looking innovative and creative on both sides yes emphasis on nationalism jewish people in its own land yes and and having a collective sense but the focus very different focus different from different parts of europe and ideology is just very different and the legacy is so different i mean Mm -hmm. Herzl's legacy is well that's actually well Herzl's not the only Zionist a lot of Zionist right. legacy is state of Israel including Jabotinsky among others cultural Zionism and Max Nordau more like physically strong mm-hmm. there's a lot of Zionisms out there Israel is the legacy of all of them but Herzl's creating a state where Jewish culture can flourish certainly you know that's a big part of his legacy not inherently violent Although violence is a sad part of Israel's, you know, 75 years of history in many ways. Yeah, right. Which I think we'll kind of circle back around to to talking about that a little bit once we get into talking maybe a little bit more about the book Out Neuland yes. and kind of so, how that connects yeah. with some of these. Yeah, give us yeah. Like a But quick... I mean, do we want to talk about speculative fiction and kind of how we're understanding that first? Sure. So speculative fiction, so all fiction is speculative, which is kind of a funny thing, but speculative fiction narrowly defined is this subgenre of fiction that is often dystopian or utopian and is often focused on the question of what if, like what if this happened, what if that happened, and where the author thinks that humanity or society either is headed in the future in some direction or if something in the past had gone a little bit differently, here's what also could have happened. Sort of like retro speculative or future, here's where we're heading as either an optimistic or as a cautionary tale. A lot of speculative fiction is like, you know, what if one thing changed in the past that led to a whole new timeline? Not so much for the future stuff, although there often is like one moment that does tip the scales in terms of creating a larger future. 
So like the what if genre of the past, things like Michael Chabon's Yiddish Policeman's Union, where there's what if the Jews of Europe migrate to Sitka, Alaska in the 40s and not to Palestine. How would that have changed things? Roth's Plot Against America, where Charles Lindbergh becomes popular, and America basically is part of the Axis in World War II, not the Allies. Um, Orson Scott Card, his Seven Sun series, imagines what if everyone had a magic ability? How would that have changed American history? And then his other future forward thinking, Memories of Earth, what if humanity was able to colonize other planets and 50 million years later, finds their way back to Earth. As a documentary, I saw the CSA, the Confederate States of America. What if the South wins the Civil War? Chilling. And Hunters on Amazon Prime is also a speculative fiction. Like, what if there were vigilantes hunting down Nazis and not just, you know, Wiesenthal doing it more through legal means? Um, and then, you know, Star Trek, Marvel's What If series, Asimov's Foundation, Apple TV's For All Mankind, kind of like a bit of both retro and future. What if Race to the Moon, the Russians get there first and the Cold War takes place all in space and there's so much more money put into space travel and space flight. And then the expanse, you know, humanity spread across Mars, the asteroid belt and Earth. And then, you know, extremely Dune is also in our timeline. You know, humanity, 50,000 years in the future, what are they doing? So all of these are kind of speculative fiction or what if in some sense. And, you know, how does Herzl's Neuland fit into some of these genres? Yeah. So just as a, a very brief synopsis of the book, Alt Neuland translates to the old new land in English. The translator for the Hebrew edition coined the the title Tel Aviv, which later actually became the name of a city that so it, he the translator is the one who's responsible for coming up with that name it. So the plot is basically that Friedrich Lovenberg, who is a young Jewish intellectual very similar to Herzl himself living in Vienna, who joins with this American Prussian aristocrat named King's Court who wants to sort of escape from European civilization. They go to this remote Pacific island, but on the way there in 1902, they stop at the port of Jaffa or Yafo. On their way there, they find to see Palestine, which at the time, according to the story, is destitute and not very advanced economically, technologically, etc. But then after 20 years, they decide to come back and they've been cut off from civilization, haven't kept up with what's been going on in the world. They stop in Palestine once again. It's 1923 and they discover that it has been radically transformed. There's a Jewish society called the New Society with, that's been created essentially by European Jews. They meet up with some, some people Lovenberg had known in Vienna. They discover that technology has been used to transform the land of Israel into a modern, advanced society. 
it's quite utopian. Arabs have equal rights with Jews. Non-Jews have equal rights with Jews. There are all kinds of different ethnic groups who are there interacting. And it seems like they created this idealized opt-in society that the local population seemed to welcome the new rivals as bringing these positive technological developments. And there seems to have been very little conflict at all in establishing this. Do you want to add anything to that overview? I guess the one thing that was perhaps one of the most striking features is that towards the end of the book, where they begin to raise the funds to actually buy the land, that there's no problem with the land acquisition. Everyone's happy to sell. I think it's a great idea. There's a certain vibrant optimism that runs through mm -hmm. the whole work, which even though Herzl himself knew that conflict was extraordinarily likely, and we're talking about, you know, what does the audience need to hear? He might know in his political work that conflict is likely and very, very plausible. But in terms of the audience who's going to be reading the book, they need to hear the it's all going to work out optimism. So mm -hmm. I think the optimism was striking, I think, as an overall vibe for the work. And yeah. that was interesting. Given how pessimistic he was about Europe, it's almost like the inverse, basically, about what could be. And I wonder how much the optimism really did just fuel so much of actual Jewish optimism in the time period. Hard to measure. I would love to know how much his work actually landed and what it did to get people thinking differently about what could be. What if? I mean, it worked. Yeah. I mean, it worked. I mean, but how much did the book itself impact things? Right. Don't and know. we were talking a bit about like who the audience for this was versus who would be the audience for Der Judenstadt? Who is reading a political pamphlet talking about the need for this versus choosing to write in the form of a fictional narrative? Who would find that? Is it to try to appeal to a different audience to get like a different, you know, sense of, right, as you're saying, optimism about what this possible future could look like to get them excited about it? And it's so interesting to notice what the details are. They go through this tour of this new, of the new society and, you know, have this back and forth exchange about, oh, well, how do you organize the economy? And there's this whole thing about how the newspapers are owned and there seem to be worker cooperatives and the business owners pay into social welfare programs and these things that probably didn't exist anywhere really at the beginning of the 20th century. So he's playing out utopianism in all kinds of different ways. I mean, also women seem to have more rights there. Their women have the right to vote. They are participating in the professions. It's quite interesting in, in all of those ways. He is living during women's suffrage in Europe. Mm -hmm. right. Mary the Pop movement for women's suffrage. Right. Mary Poppins is set not that differently than... A little bit later. It's like 1910. Yeah. There's a song that's like, it's good to be an Englishman in 1910. I actually, I didn't know that Mary Poppins is actually set deep in women's suffrage. So mm -hmm. I'm much older. I'm like, oh, this is much better than when I was a kid. 
well done, sister suffragettes. Yeah, I didn't really... even know what that was talking about. Uh -huh. And now I look back at Mary Poppins from set in this time period, and I love it even more. Mm -hmm. It's actually my favorite Disney thing. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite Disney show of all time. It's number one on my list. Every song is amazing. Yeah. The story is very interesting. Um, yeah. The, the political backdrop is such an interesting time period of this societal upheaval. Mm -hmm. And you know, where is European society going? You know, the age of men was fading and Herzl was on board. He, he saw women's rights changing and right. which is very interesting that he's that liberal visionary. Although, although you know, as much as I, I have so much more I could say about Mary Poppins, I'm thinking about right. The ways that Herzl does seem to be progressive for his time and then also the ways where that we've noted where he's actually you know very much of his time right like the way that this is envisioned is as part like th that the way that he describes it is not that it's going to be an independent state at least from the from the beginning it's like this entity within this like some kind of imperial um setting so there's not really a questioning of the world order in that there are empires there's not really a question of whether that empire should be a thing that seems to be more or less accepted. And there's still this prioritization of European culture. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they're like, oh, yes, you know, theater companies and musical performances from Europe come all the time. And he still is very much a European culturally. And just the idea is, oh, we just need to create a Jewish version of that. Yeah. There's not a questioning of the like underpinnings of European civilization or political organization. It's it's really interesting. I think he he would like to stay in Europe, Herzl, but they can't. There's this mm -hmm. melancholy feeling. We thought we were home. Turns out we're not. So let's recreate a Jewish version of this in Palestine. Because this is so good. And when we leave... We're going to have relationship with this place that we can't live in, but we're still going to be part of it, but on our own and separate. It's not like they reject European. No, they're, no, they're a Jewish European colony in Palestine on the road to a kind of political sovereignty. And maybe the conflict is down the road in his timeline, mm -hmm. you know, beyond the book's borders. Maybe that's where they're going to have the actual conflict and, you know, yeah, violence is, is inevitable, but not yet. We're going to get the critical mass there and then we'll deal with things as they come once we actually have, you know, sovereignty, land, determination, etc. But it, it's colonialism. I mean, I, yeah. you know, so, you know, yeah. I, I'm very critical of those who call Zionism is colonialism. And yet it is very clear in Herzl's writings. Well, of course it would be because that's what everyone did back then. Right. There's no questioning of that at all. And so, you know, yeah, it's it's historically accurate in a yes. lot of ways. I mean, the they time. had organizations that were like, you know, organization for the Jewish colonization of Palestine. They were appealing to whoever the imperial rulers were, first the Ottoman Empire, and then when the British took over, they were appealing to the British Empire and not questioning different people might have had different ideas about whether you're going to be sort of a a entity within this imperial structure or, you know, as different um, during this time period, this is when you really start seeing a lot of these like nationalist movements, this idea of 
which is a new thing, reminding everyone, as we kind of talked about with our episode on empires, that the idea that nations, groups of people with a common identity should exist within their own political borders is a pretty new concept that is getting played out in Europe. I mean, starting kind of like at the very, very end, maybe of the 18th century with the French Revolution Mm -hmm. and gets developed further and throughout the 19th century. And, you know, so in a lot of ways, Zionism in that it is a nationalist movement, this idea of nations properly must have a state that is for them is very much a product of the European context that they're operating in. In the book, I don't recall this aspect. How much is there a sense of attachment to the land of Israel, Palestine as the right place to be versus the place that's convenient and used to be ours? Is there there any kind of sense of religious, cultural, historical attachment to it as place? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, so first of all, it's kind of interesting because King's Court, who is not Jewish, kind of drags along his Jewish companion to go to Palestine in the first place. He's like, oh, don't you want to see your like fatherland or whatever it is? I can't remember what term he uses. And he's like, no, thanks. I'm not really that interested. And he's like, oh, come on, it'll be fun. And then they go and they're like, you know, see things and sort of it's faded glory. And then when they come back, um, there is all of this looking out at the romantic scene of the old city that's been restored. They rebuild the temple. There's a temple. So, yeah, there's like this romanticism for the Jewish past. And it, but it's, I don't know, I can't remember. It certainly remember. makes it not futurism in terms of as a genre. It is certainly, that's where it's right. not part of that. But it is more, it's more like this, uh, but it's more like classic nationalism. The glory it's Right. Old. And I'm not sure, right, kind of, I feel like it's like this, but to me, like this makes perfect sense from what I know about, you know, Herzl and other like primarily secular Zionists. At this point, you know, Zionism, unlike today, was largely a secular political movement, Mm -hmm. political and cultural movement. And so for Herzl, there's this connection to the history maybe less of a connection to and sort of a romanticizing of this mythical Jewish past of the monarchy and Jews were sovereign over our own land and isn't that great but less of a a connection I think with there being something essential about the land itself Mm -hmm. uh, in the way that you see communicated throughout the Hebrew Bible is this emphasis on the land having a particular import as having been promised by God to this certain family of people. That doesn't really seem emphasized here, and that could be because that idea is just not in Herzl's mind. It's so interesting, sort of this, this, this strong secular vision, not negating the beautiful past, but not really viewing it as a vital part of his present. Yeah, it's like, it's just a nice, well, you know, I'm not going to to make a 100% claim on this because I'd have to go back and read more carefully 
but it's a nice, beautiful, picturesque backdrop to this new modern society where all of the forms and structures of the society are entirely modern and new and progressive. I'm fixated on like figuring out is Alt Neuland a work of sci-fi or fantasy? I like the idea that we have this this book that is this interesting speculative utopian possible future. Right. Guiding right. what does eventually happen in some form. Yeah, I mean, right, and it goes back to our sort of defining speculative fiction. Star Trek seems to be a type of speculative fiction, but not all speculative fiction is sci-fi. And also, fantasy could kind of fall into the category of being speculative or not. I don't know. Imagining future possible optimistic reality where everything's great, that is a fantasy. It's not like, you know, Tolkien right it's a kind of fantasy yeah i don't know but then <laughs> right i don't know you just we keep going back around in the circle but like isn't then all fiction speculative and also right, right. I, I tend to think of something as putting as putting something into the fantasy subgenre as there needs to be something different about i don't know the nature of reality that is distinct from the kind of world that we live in like that seems to be a common thread. I think a reestablished jewish state was fantasy i mean that was Im literally means like story or fantasy right 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 agada right 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 it's like right he's like we're gonna make fantasy reality right im if you will it it's not just a nice story right mm -hmm. or how about you translate agada and that right. sense myth myth i like myth in the, myth. the rabbi neil gilman sense of the word right that's from mm -hmm. you that was like the you know a song that i sang as a kid all the time at many many youth group things Im Tirtsu. Mm -hmm. oh yes for mm -hmm. sure mm-hmm all right, so maybe that does kind of like put it firmly in the realm of at that time period, it was fantasy because <laughs> like, oh, this is, right. how could this possibly but then, happen? But then we also have these, you know, technological elements that play an important role. And, you know, we were exploring this possible connection with futurism, which we decided, right. no, it's not quite that. Right. It's a point of connection, but it doesn't make it futurism. Yeah. But it has a couple points of connection with futurism, but it's not because it lacks other the, those other key factors, negation of the past, violence, hatred of women. <laughs> it lacks some oh. things. I'm glad it lacks mm -hmm. those. Yeah. yeah, it certainly is not that futurism, that's for sure. No. It's more like Star Trek futurism in the sense that it was optimistic, inclusive and progressive. But like yeah. Roth and For All Mankind, it like hues very close to realism. It's not going like super off the rails, but it's sticking close to what could be if just the winds of history blew this way. Mm -hmm. Right. They're very careful to emphasize, oh, yes, we just made use of existing technology that was already, you know, happening. They didn't have to, you know make 
an earth-shattering new discovery in order to, you know, put in place all of the wonderful things that they create. Right. Which, the I guess rail the, lines. I guess to the audience, that makes his fantastic vision doable. This could happen. We don't need anything new technologically to make this happen. This mm -hmm. is all within the realm of very, very real possibility. You know, whereas Star Trek yeah. requires a lot of technological leaps that kind mm -hmm. of push it into the fantastic realm and beyond, like they should be having serious time dilation issues. But they <laughs> don't. Orson Scott Card, in his Travel Among the Stars work, he puts that in as a major element of the reality is that when you travel really fast, say goodbye to your friend because they're all going to be dead when you get there. It's like one of his main characters, Ender, he goes mm -hmm. on a very long voyage and he knows he will never see his sister again. Or she'll be very, very elderly. Mm -hmm. Star Trek, they don't worry about it. They're, yeah. Yeah, very optimistic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say about Adnoy Land as we move to the end of the segment? Not nothing's coming to mind right now. Okay. I hope people read it. I hope people appreciate it as a piece of Jewish literature that is often overlooked. And it's certainly a time period in Jewish literary activity. I don't think it's a lot of attention in general, mm -hmm. especially secular Jewish literature or political Jewish literature. Yeah. So hopefully we give it a little bit of a shout out, put it back on people's minds, back on the map. Yeah. And I mean, I th yeah, I, I think I'm interested in it also, or was first introduced to it in the context of, you know, really reading what early Zionist thinkers actually said because mm -hmm. you know since the state of israel in fact became a thing and you know the nature of political conversation about it is about what's going on now and what should the future be there i think is tended to be you know less focus on okay well, what did these what were the different ideas that were in circulation in the period of time preceding the establishment and creation of the state of Israel. That and there was not decades. just one idea. Um, that there, there's decades and there was a lot of disagreement and a lot of people had vastly different visions and some of them might have kind of been sort of delusional and that they thought, oh yeah, this is going to be easy peasy. And some of them said things that I think make a lot of people who are sympathetic to the modern day state of Israel feel really uncomfortable because those are things that critics of Israel often say, like the thing that we're talking about with colonialism, right? Yeah. There's a lot of fights right now about that, about the use of the word colonialism or settler colonialism to apply to Israel. While we see with a lot of the writing of these original thinkers that that was not considered at all problematic to them. And so I think there's something that at least for me has felt really empowering about being able to read some of these works on their own terms and, and to see that there is not only one way 
no, there's never been one way to think about all of the issues that, that are attendant to, you know, the creation of a modern state in a place where there had not been a large Jewish community at the time of the establishment of that state. Prior to the establishment of the state. They're home. Yay. I was thinking two, one, Arthur Hertzberg's The Zionist Idea, a historical analysis and reader. And another collection is The Making of Modern Zionism, The Intellectual Origins of the Jewish State. I'll put links mm -hmm. to those in the show notes as well. Yeah. Two really good anthologies on mm -hmm. all of this intellectual history that all kind of yeah. inspired yeah. And I mean, I would also say the Paul Mendes, Flora, and Yehuda Reinhardt's Jews in the Modern World. Jews in the Modern World is always a good one yep. to about anything kind of covering the modern. I wish there was a Kindle version of that book um, yeah. so often. I really, really do. It's such a good anthology. I like the idea that Herzl wrote science fiction. I just kind of, yeah. I kind of like, like that idea that the most prominent Zionist thinker wrote a sci-fi utopian novel that helped shape history. That's wonderful. Yeah, and that that was the medium that he chose to try to communicate his message. And I mean, I think for me, like a, a lot of what I was resonating with in in reading Altnoyland is how much he thought about right the social structure, the political structures, the economic structures, the fact that like women are included, you know, and that it wasn't just about right okay we came we did this thing here it is but that it really feels like the kind of world building that we see in a lot of sci-fi and fantasy works that really allow you to imagine and explore a better possible world a lot of you know these sci-fi fantasy works you know as we were talking about with star trek and and others kind of stretch the boundaries and envision what might be possible um, based on the author's own sense of what would be a better way to organize society sometimes. Sometimes it's dystopian too. It's a warning about like what could go wrong. Yeah. Um, but I think he was writing yeah. from the midst of the dystopia and saying yes. there's a way out of this dystopian Europe, which felt utopian originally, ah, we've made it. We are now citizens of these modern nation states. The exile is over. And then Herzl reflecting on the Dreyfus case said, nope, we're still stuck in a dystopian nightmare. We just deluded ourselves for a while, but it's still seething beneath the surface. And he's like, let's get our, out of here and we'll make our own utopia. The best of Europe minus the anti-Semitism. Right. And but also magically and very progressive and also magically erasing any like conflict or problems. <laughs> like yes. we're just going to come here thinking. and there's just, it's just going to be magical. Magical thinking. Yeah. And progressive. Yeah. Interesting that he's like so socially progressive. Definitely I mean mm -hmm. secular and Jewish, but definitely progressive in the secular way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. I'm really glad it exists. I'm glad we read it. And um, 
I hope people appreciate it. Yeah, and I think I think people should check it out. And anyone who's listening, if you want to read it, the full English text is available online. You can just Google it. And there, I think there's a link directly from the notes in the Wikipedia page, or we can include a link. I will put the link our in show the notes. show notes. That's a great so idea. So you can read it at your leisure. All right. Let's turn to From the Geniza, picking something from the past that maybe you've read, maybe you haven't. And I wanted to bring out of the Geniza two series by the author Orson Scott Card, often mostly known for his work in Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead and all of the books that come out of the, I don't know, Enderverse. I don't know what one would call it. <laughs> they only made one movie. It was fine. But the Enderverse is, a, is like, I think, 12 books, and they're all, I read six of them. They're very good. But he has other series that related more to what we're talking about. Thinking about, like, alternate histories and envisioning futures. So it hits both of those very speculative fiction what-if things. So the one series that is like, let's rethink, what if... American history happened in a world where everybody has what he calls a knack or a magic ability, not unlike the Xanth series, but a little more sophisticated. So he imagines that everybody has a knack and he's coming from a Latter-day Saints perspective. So he's definitely writing from that Christian orientation. And the seventh son of a family is a special individual, kind of like wizards are seventh sons in like certain other realms. But he writes about a seventh son of a seventh son who is what's called a maker. And makers can bend reality to their will. They're the most powerful kind of knack wielder. In this alternate American history, there's the United States and New England and new france and new spain like the whole union never really gels there's also an, an autonomous iroquois state that mm. is upstate new york that is independent has their own democratic system and it's just a, a different view of how america could have gone i think one of the i remember like i think jefferson beheads washington with his own sword <laughs> after the revolutionary oh. war it's just a different disunion to how the colonies form and get along. It's nothing like the system that we have now or the history now. So it's just a different take on US history, which is an interesting just, you know, what if things went just a little bit differently. And the whole series leads to basically the migration to Missouri, ultimately to Salt Lake City, to the creation of like the, you know, the homeland of the Latter-day Saints denomination, religion, whatever it might be. So the whole thing aims towards that. And, and it very overtly so. So I recommend that series. It's very interesting. Another series he wrote, it's, which is far, far future, like what if we destroy Earth? Page, this is page one. We destroy Earth. It's uninhabitable. So humanity flees in colony ships. One colony ship lands on a planet which they call harmony and they say okay let's alter our dna to allow 
for this system of satellites that we're going to create to change our minds, get us off of certain thoughts. They identify a number of core ideas and technologies that were humanity's downfall. Combustion engines, the wheel, ballistics, all kinds of things. These were the problem. So if someone thinks of these things, the Oversoul, which is what they call this satellite system, gets them just to wonder what's for lunch. Just what's next? Oh, 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 I, what was that? Oh, okay, on to the next thing. Just changes their mind. And the Oversoul was designed to last for 10 million years, figuring that, okay, humanity will be able to work out our issues surely in 10 million years. And 10 million years go by, not an optimistic. This is just like page one. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. 10 million well, years of just 10 million years okay. go by and humanity is no closer to being redeemed or achieved some higher level. So 10 million years go by, nothing's happening. At 20 million years, it's begun to lose some of its satellite. It's no longer as effective. And at 30 million years, it knows I need repair. So I need to create a, a family to go back to earth to then come back and fix me to carry out my mission. And so at 40 million years of human history, <laughs> the family is ready, is, is poised to go back. They don't know it, but they've been bred over thousands of years to be the family to go back, to go to earth, then come back and fix the oversoul so humanity can attain its higher form. So it's a five book plus one series. It's very much five books of Moses. And mm. it's very much like Joseph and his brothers like it's very biblical. The family kind of slowly figures out this call is coming and they organize and go. And then they ultimately do get back to earth as the one book is actually just on the ship going back. It's a very slow, methodical journey. Then book six is back on earth and what they find when they're back on earth, which is that two species have become sentient. Oh, which two species? Rats and bats. Hmm. Rats occupy the underground, bats occupy the skies, and when humans return, they occupy the middle ground. They're kind of a mediation between the two. And um, the rats are basically treated as a sub-intelligent underclass by the bats. And it's <laughs> clearly an allegory for systemic racism clearly so. So humanity may have improved slightly, but goodness knows sentient life is still flawed. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very good series, and I highly recommend both of those series. They're just, they're very Mormon in the sense that, you know, the Memories of Earth, which is other world colonization. Actually, the satellites are actually the basis of their religion. There's a woman in a men's religion based on the Oversoul and how they actually like relate to these. They're just satellites, hmm. but they become religion. But they don't know That's their satellites. They've forgotten that they're satellites. They don't know anymore. But it can speak to them. It has access to their mind to actually communicate, send ideas, messages. It's very, it's really mm -hmm. quite, quite intriguing as like a basis for an otherworldly religion. Yeah. Fascinating. He's a wonderful author. We disagree on many, many things, but on his writing style, we agree. It is great. When did you first read both of these series? I read Ender's Game late high school. 
because my brother read it when I was going to college. So I probably read everything else, college and after. I read Memories of Earth probably either during my years at JTS or in Louisville, Kentucky. So in the earlier years, like about 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, the reason I ask is also because we're, we're pulling things from the Geniza, not necessarily just things that were written in the past, but things that we experienced at a past time and like what, you know, what the meaning might have been for us at, at the time that we first like encounter some of these things and, you know, how it resonated yeah. with you then and, you know, if you have any reflections on you know, Specifically the Seven Sun series because Orson Scott Card came to San Diego when book five came out and I got to hear him do a reading from the book and he signed my copy. So definitely college, college and post-college years. I just found in his writing, one, such a, a clear writer's voice. He was able to create worlds with so few words. Like he didn't describe the worlds in detail, but just enough for your mind to fill in the rest. So mm -hmm. I love he was able to world build without extraordinary levels of detail. Right. Some authors really want you to describe everything. Yeah. He just sort of evokes everything mm -hmm. beautifully. And he writes about characters in our lives and their relationships at the center of his writing, which I think is what makes them so compelling. They're just such compelling mm -hmm. people with compelling conflicts in their lives and loves in their lives. And also seeing the very clear religious overtones as a person who is like heading to rabbinical school had engaged in more serious Jewish life, reading overtly religious fantasy and sci-fi was exciting. Yeah. Yeah, very it's very exciting. So as a as a person who as a person who is a living a religious life, to read an author who's bringing that into how he expresses his theology um, mm -hmm. as, a, as a member of the Church of Latter Day Saints was also very interesting. So inspired me yeah. to then read other you know, Jewish authors who were also expressing Jewish thoughts, ideology, theology through their writings, which is very hard to find in fantasy. There's much more that, we, that we've written as people in the science fiction realm, mm -hmm. not as much in the fantasy. Huh. We should do an episode about the movie Noah. The movie Noah. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's probably worth a whole episode by itself. Okay. I could go on about that movie for weeks and days. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sacred Realms. This concludes our fourth episode, What If, looking at speculative fiction, utopian novels, dystopian novels, and futurism or not futurism. We hope you enjoy the episode and come back to hear more. Our next episode will come out in about a month and will be timed to be released around the holiday of Shavuot, which is the holiday when we celebrate the giving of the Torah and it'll be some theme related to that festival to be determined. If you like this episode, please leave us a positive rating and review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. And thank you for all of our positive reviews and our emails so far. 
This episode was written and edited by me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. And me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. This episode was recorded on Zoom and edited using Descript. And you can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. May the Mafarshim be with you.